All right. This week is a primary intersection between Judaism and Christianity. It's the remembrance of the Passover and all the events when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt into the covenant that they made with God and then the promise of returning to the land of Abraham. It's also the remembrance of Jesus, the servant of God, who suffered death and burial and was resurrected as the sacrifice for sins uh, for humanity as the ultimate Passover, not only for Israel, but those of us from the nations who trust in the God of Abraham. This week also connects more than that. It connects to Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, when the commandments were given through the counting of the Omer and the Sabbaths, which begin today. And it connects to Yom Kippur, which is what Good Friday is representative of, and the Ascension in 40 days. And it also uh, anticipates the fulfillment of the restoration of the Kingdom of Israel when Jesus will return to sit on the throne of his father David. The rituals of the Seder and the Last Supper, uh, what's called the Eucharist, both express these truths and invite us to experience that truth through the ceremonies. As we experience those things as if we were at the events, there's an internalization, particularly for our children, that's critical to our identity and worldview as Jews and Christians united in the Messiah. This is particularly important for our children who are growing up in a world that does not know uh, Joseph and does not know Moses and does not know David and does not know Jesus. The resurrection is of particular importance in all of this. And we're told in several passages of the New Testament that we are to consider ourselves raised with Christ and seated with Him in the heavens. So today I want to underscore that a little bit with one of my favorite passages in the New Testament regarding the resurrection, 1 Peter chapter 1, um, the, the entire chapter there. So if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll take a look at this. It was tempting for me to go all the way through Peter because he lays the foundation in chapter 1. But I know that you have places to be and people to see and things to do, so I'm not doing that. Peter begins with these words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, Bithynia, uh, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. Now, Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. You are going to see an enormous connection between 1 Peter 1 and the book of Romans, where Paul and Peter, who I'm sure spoke about this, are tying a lot of the same things together. And what, what uh, the apostle says here is that he's writing to those who are scattered. Those are the Jews who are in diaspora. And by the time he's writing this, there are also Gentiles who have been called out of their culture to be joined to Israel in diaspora. Fascinating notion. Israel, who's been removed from the land, is now being told uh, that, that what they are waiting for is coming to pass. And those Gentiles 
who come to faith in Jesus are in some sense removed from their culture, tied closer to the Israel of God and the God of Israel in anticipation of that same thing. And so to that extent, Peter is writing to both groups. He then talks about what uh, is happening, that they are chosen, chosen by the foreknowledge or in the foreknowledge of God the Father for the sanctifying work, the pulling them separate as a holy people to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled uh, with his blood, that mercy seat of the high priest, that idea that we are not being dealt with according to our sins. We are being dealt with by the mercy of God. And then he gives the ironic blessing. Uh, the shortened form, which is commonly found in the Newer Testament. Grace and peace be yours. In this case, he says, to its fullest measure. And so you can almost hear the, the Lord bless you and keep you and be gracious to you. Lift up his face upon you and give you peace. That ironic blessing being mentioned. Then Peter does something that's very, very Jewish. He does a bracha. Now, I like brachas because my name... Bruce in Hebrew is Baruch, which is what this, that word is. It means blessed. Now, we usually ask God to bless things. That's in the Bible, too. What is traditionally done among Jews is they bless God for what he's done. And so that's what he is doing here. And he says these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now there's an enormous amount of theology in these verses uh, that we don't have time to fully unpack but I want you to see what he's doing. He's blessing God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That bracha is somewhat adapted from the blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, um, to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that he, according to his mercy, that's again the mercy seat and the atonement that's been done, has caused us to be born again. Now this phrase, born again, is not the same phrase that is used in John's gospel when Jesus and Nicodemus have a conversation. In John's gospel, when Jesus says, you must be born again, he doesn't actually say, you must be born again. He uses a word that means, born from above, that in Greek had both meanings of above or again. And Nicodemus misunderstood it and thought that he said, you must be born again, when he was saying you must be born from above. Now the problem is, we can't translate it that way, or Nicodemus will really sound like he doesn't know what he's talking about. So we translate it, born again, but Jesus ultimately is explaining to him that if you're born earthly and of the, of the earth, you have to be born heavenly in that sense. Now that is a subsequent birth. But that's not what the word means. Here it's clearly the idea of a renewed birth, a second birth. And so he says, we are born again to a living hope. That living hope is really important. Uh, 
A lot of people use the phrase, while there's life, there's hope. You've heard that phrase. Uh, That is not the Judeo-Christian view. While there's life, there's hope says, we can make this work as long as we're still alive and can do something about it. But the Jewish and Christian view is that if in this life only we have hope, and Paul said this, we're of of all men most miserable. In other words, we have a different kind of hope. Our hope is a living hope, not our life, but his life. He's alive by resurrection, and therefore our hope is secure and real. And even though we die, that hope is still a living hope. And so he says that God has given us a living hope. We're born again to a living hope. And he says that that's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, in verse 4 he says that we will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Again, I don't have time to go into all this, but he is really saying almost identically what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. That if this earthly tabernacle of our body is dissolved, we have an eternal one from the heavens, not made with hands. He's talking about the resurrection body. And in the resurrection body, it is imperishable. It is incorruptible. It will not fade away. That inheritance, there is more to the inheritance than that, but that inheritance begins with a resurrected body. We shall be resurrected because I live, you shall live, Jesus said. And so that, that body is our inheritance and it's important and it's one of the reasons why we bury our dead in sure and certain hope of the resurrection. Because these bodies will be changed, resurrected, and adapted. We were created to be embodied. We were not created to float around in heaven somewhere. And ultimately, in the new creation, there will be a new earth and a new Jerusalem and our new bodies. And all of that will be beyond anything that we can imagine or think, uh, the apostle tells us. So, we have an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled that will not fade away. That resurrected body that is geared to the world to come. It's heavenly in that it's not of this world, but it won't be in heaven. It will be in the new creation. This is not a resurrection like Lazarus. Lazarus rose from the dead in the same body and condition, and he would have to die again. There is nothing that God does in this creation that a miracle of a healing or even a raising of the dead that, that doesn't end with this creation. But what he does beyond this creation, the living hope, is that which is eternal. And so that's a really important notion. Uh, we will be adopted as sons in the restored creation with, with resurrection. And he says, we're protected. I love that. We're protected from anything that could present, prevent this promise of faith. This salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. I was kind of taught when I became a believer that that salvation was all right now. You've got it all now. And it's all done. And some of the testimonies were, you know, my life was lousy and then I came to Jesus and now it's been great. And my experience wasn't the same as that. My experience was, this life hurts. Uh, 
This is not where our hope is. This is not where our salvation is. The ultimate salvation is when we are fully saved. Now we've been born again. We are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And in the resurrection of the body, the whole being will be saved. And that's the salvation that the apostle is talking about. And that just smacks of Romans chapter 8. We are protected by God. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Life, nor death, nor any other created thing. Anything of this creation. That's amazing. No illness. No loss of money. No loss of job. No traffic on the 91 freeway. None of that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's a hope, a living hope, beyond this life, in the life to come. And so we are reminded that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now often, I wish he would remove me from the problems. He doesn't promise to do that. But he does promise that he won't leave us. So if we're going through the problems, he's right there with us. And that's important. So now we pick up at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now again, he's talking about the second coming, the revealing of Christ that will happen. And he says, now while we're in this body, while we're in this life, there are problems, there are testings, there are trials, there are things that test our faith. They don't tempt us to give up our faith. God doesn't do that to us. Satan would like to do that. But God is testing our faith. It is when we go through those difficulties, it's when we go through those uncertain times, it's when we go through those various temptings and tryings that our faith begins to shine. And you know people whose faith doesn't shine in those settings. They are fair-weather believers. When things are going good, they praise the Lord. And when things are going bad, they doubt the Lord. That is not our faith. Our faith is when things are going good, we should be praising the Lord. But we should also be aware that that's not the normal condition. And then when things go bad, we, we continue to cling to the Lord because he is walking through with us. And so the rejoicing can be done even in times of great sorrow and great difficulty. Uh, the sufferings, Paul says, that we have are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. So I want you to look at that verse. That verse 7. It says that your faith is being tested by the fire. Almost like gold. Even though gold's temporary and you're not. And it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now what's amazing here. Is this is not talking about the praise and glory and honor of Jesus. It's talking about the praise and glory and honor that is given to our faith. It's, to, it's because of Jesus. But the Bible says that we are called to be to the praise of His glory in our demonstration to the angels. 
And so what will ultimately happen is the angels will see the glory of God in our faith being tested and being uh, maintained. But ultimately the unbeliever will have to confess that God was among us. The Bible says that at that day when he comes, they will have to confess uh, that God was among us, even though they mocked us in this present time. And so this suffering that we go through, though it is not easy, uh, is a process that proves our faith that will be then part of the praise and glory of God and our justification at the revelation. In 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 then, he continues. This is really fascinating. The apostles, of course, saw the risen Lord. And so in each of their cases, they say, we saw him. We were there. We were in him, with him in the mount, Peter will say. John will say, that which we have handled of the word of life, we testify to you. But we are like Thomas. We're like Thomas the first time. We're not like Thomas the second time. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appeared. And he said, I'm not going to believe if I don't see him. And so Jesus appeared and said, put your hands in my hand, put your fingers in my hands and my side. It's me. And don't be doubting, but be faithful. And he says, you have seen and believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so that statement that Jesus is making is repeated here by Peter when he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I don't know about you, it's not, I don't live in a constant state of giddiness. Uh, those of you who know me know that's true. But I have had moments when the message of this gospel has so overwhelmed me that it is joy. Unspe- you can't even explain it. And it is filled with going those moments when you see it and you hang on then as you're going through the difficult times. Uh, it is why when uh, we got the word that Braden was not going to remain with us, that I told you that it was not a faith crisis for us, for our faith was secured in the Lord, but it's a terrible testing of that faith, but the hope outweighs all of that pain and that struggle. So, Peter goes on now in uh, verse 9 and says, and you're going to obtain as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That whole being, the suke, the nefesh, whatever term you want to call it, the person. That is, that is what our faith is about. The salvation of our souls and the totality of the creation being restored. In verse 10 he says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person And the time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That verse 11 is really important. Judaism struggled for a long time with the idea of two messiahs. 
The Messiah ben Yosef, the suffering one, and the Messiah ben David, the, the reigning one, and they struggled with it. And finally, I think erringly, decided that they were the suffering servant. Now, they certainly are suffering as the people of God. But the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is not Israel. It is the Lord Jesus. He came. He was Yeshua ben Yosef. He was salvation. The son of Joseph was his name. And he came to suffer. But there were glories that were going to follow. It says, for the glory set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross. And so the prophets have written these things so that we would understand. And he says, it was revealed to them, verse 12, that they were not serving themselves, but you, we who are now believing. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news, the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit, Sent from heaven. You can just see the Pentecost uh, linkage there. Things with angels desire long to look upon. The angels are always trying to see this. Because the creation was created because the angels couldn't figure God out. And God said, okay, I'm going to create a world. And you watch this. In it you'll see my wrath. You'll see my glory. You'll see my mercy. You'll see my judgment. You'll see all about me. This is a self-portrait of God for the angel's sake, Paul says, and Peter says, and several others say. And that is what's going on. We're the actors on that stage. He makes of the clay vessels of honor and dishonor. And thank God we're the vessels of honor. We have the same clay as those who don't. So then he says... uh, This gospel, I'll get back to that when we get to his final quote, but it's about things that the angels desire to look on. So now he tells us what to do with it. We have this resurrection hope. We have this certainty that it's going to come. It's a salvation ready to be revealed, but we're going through a time of difficulty. And so now he says to us these words, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope continually on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now this is Peter's version of of Romans chapter 12. He begins with, gird up your mind. That's literally what the Greek says. Uh, We almost can't use those words anymore. I had a whole class this last week, and I asked them if any of them knew what gird up your minds were. Most of them, uh, gird up your loins. Most of them never heard the term. It's a term for preparing to get moving. You know, in those days, they wore the the, kind of toga thing. And those are not easy to run in. And so if you're getting ready, if you're getting prepared, you'd reach down and grab the back of that thing, pull it up and tuck it into your belt, and now it was like shorts and you could run. And, and basically Peter's saying, do that with your mind. Okay? Unclutter your mind, get it focused, get ready, and focus. Be sober. Okay? Be alert. Fix your hope completely. On the grace that's going to be given you, not now, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
and as obedient children who have been born again. Do not be conformed to the way, your old way of life. This is not my old way of life with the grace of Jesus, so I continue it. It's being turned into a child of God who's going to one day be a son of God. That notion of being a child to being an adult. And that's what the resurrection will be about. And ultimately, that calls us out of the world and out of our past to be holy because God is holy. And what holy means is set apart for a special purpose. I've told you this before. My mom had two sets of dishes. One was for special company only. As it turned out, we never had special company. I never saw those dishes used very much. But the other dishes were the everyday dishes. And one day my sister and I decided that we were going to have our own bakery made out of mud stuff. And so we made mud eggs and mud donuts and mud uh, bread and all that stuff. And we decided this was pretty special, so we used mom's holy dishes. And the holy wrath of mom came down on us, okay? The idea is God has a purpose. And God wants us to be called according to his purpose, not our purpose, okay? The Christian life is not me asking God to bless what I want to do. It's me coming alongside God in what he's doing in the earth. And that makes me kadosh. That makes me holy. And that's what Peter's talking about. So then he says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, read culture, but with the precious blood as the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And that you are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. That's really important. If we call God Father then our life must be in the direction of following Christ in obedience to God. Because God will one day judge us. I, I know a lot of Christians think that when Jesus died on the cross, everything was forgiven and all of our behavior has nothing to do with it. It's just whether we believe or not. And the Bible simply doesn't say that. There will be a judgment, but the judgment will not be our condemnation. He took care of that at the cross. Now it is our life. And our life lived here will establish where we are in the kingdom to come. And the reward that he's going to give us. Or the loss or lack of reward because we've lived our life independent of him. And what the apostle is saying is, if you call him father, why aren't you living as the father wants? Sounds like Jesus. Why do you call me Lord? Lord. And do not the things that I say. Well, because I'm doing what I want to do, and I want you to bless it. And Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? I didn't ask you to do those. I asked you to do this. 
Depart from me, I never knew you. That's pretty rough stuff. So the apostle wants us to keep focused on the purpose of the kingdom of God. So he says in verse 22, So since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls, for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. This amazing. Three great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your life, and with all your strength. The second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. One shows holiness. One shows righteousness. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That sense of unity. We're not doing very good at that. We're not very good at giving ourselves to God. Not sure we're all that good at loving our neighbor, but I know that in the church we're not very good at loving one another. Sometimes we come together in a crisis, but as a general rule, the sign of discipleship is not there, and that is our unity in the spirit in the bond of love, not in the bond of doctrine. Treating each other as brothers and sisters because we have the same father and we have the same elder brethren. So he tells us to do that. And then he says, Because you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Now he's going to get a quote. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, and the grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now I want you to get this context. Because often in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about the Word of God, we jump immediately to think that the apostles are talking about the Bible. So we actually have a notion in Hebrews where it says, for the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And we always go, yeah, that's the Bible. Well, if you read the context, it's not the Bible. It's Jesus. He's the high priest. Well, this one is also Jesus. Because it was the Word in the beginning when God said, let there be light. The Word caused the light, right? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what it's talking about. So I want you to turn with me to the quotation that Peter has given us. That quotation is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. I want to remind you that when the apostles quote a verse, they are not proof texting Okay? They're not going, Judas went and hung himself. Go thou and do likewise what you do, do quickly. They're not pulling verses like popcorn and doing that. When they quote a verse, they assume you know the whole text and the context. So what Peter's doing here is he's bringing people back to Isaiah 40. He says, you receive the good news. Now where does the word good news and gospel come from? It comes from the book of Isaiah. And you will see the beginning of the gospel and the end of the gospel in this chapter 40 where we're talking about. And it ties in to what God is trying to do in comforting his people. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double For all her sins, that scattering of Israel is about to be done and they will be brought back into the land. 
A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Isn't that what John the Baptist did at the beginning? Each of the Gospels begin with this quote. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The scripture says in other prophets that the mountain that Jerusalem is on will be the highest mountain. The rest of it will be lifted up and there will be a highway from the city entering up so that the nations can flow up to Jerusalem when the kingdom takes place. And all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. A voice, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? Now we get the quote that Peter gives. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now watch what he says. Get up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of the gospel, bearer of the good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of the good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Now look at the second coming here. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him, and his reward is with him. What does Jesus say in Revelation? Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. His recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. Jesus said to his disciples, You're my sheep. I'm the good shepherd. And he included us. I have some other sheep. And they will come. And there will be one flock and one shepherd, Jew and Gentile, brought into the same flock. In his arms he gathers the lambs, and he carries them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, calculated the dust of the earth by measure, or weighed the balance, uh, the mountains in balance, and the hills in a pair of scales? Who's directed the Spirit of the Lord? That's Paul quoting from this in Romans uh, chapter 11. Who's his counselor who informed him? With whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? None of us are on the committee. God came up with this from the foundation of the world. And he's acting it out and he's saying, get on board with me. Who has taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. Nobody in this world... Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scale. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon could not be a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Boy, the nations don't think that of themselves. To whom will you liken God? What likeness will you compare to him? The idol, the craftsman builds it, they bake it with gold, they make it with silver. The guy who doesn't have much money selects a tree that doesn't rot, and he seeks out for himself a craftsman to prepare an idol that won't wobble. Because, you know, idols wobble and they also fall down, right? 
Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the world that it is he who sits on the circle of the earth and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers? He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He reduces the rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Why? I'll tell you why. Scarcely have they planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. He blows on them. They wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. They just die. Everybody who was really important four generations ago is hardly known now. Three generations ago, hardly known. This generation, who's got all the selfies in the world, four generations from now, will not be known. We're like grass. Except you and I have a living hope. So, let me get to the end of this verse, because I want to uh, tie it together. So look at verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the weak things, the base things. To bring to nothing the things that think they are. That no flesh should boast. The youths grow weary and tired. The vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not get tired. They shall walk and not become weary. Oh, I think of the Stuart Hamlin song. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Teach me, Lord. Teach me, Lord, to wait. In the hope of the resurrection, we stand waiting for the day to come when the grace will be revealed to us. And no matter what we're going through, no matter what our loss, no matter what our struggle, that grace is promised to us at the end. And one day we will see it as Job says, I will see him and my eyes will behold him, not another's. In my own flesh I will see him. So the resurrection and the certain hope of our salvation sustains us while we remain on this earth and keeps our focus for the salvation ready to come. This salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, you